Welcome back to the Lessons for Tomorrow podcast, the motivational poster in your ear. I'm your host, Tim Alanius, VP of Strategic Initiatives at AmericanEagle.com. This episode is part two of a two-parter podcast. And in case you missed part one, I really recommend you go back and listen to that first. Otherwise, you're jumping into the middle of a conversation that probably still will make sense. Now, back to our lesson with Brian Beck talking about B2B e-commerce. I think, too, just the the digital and physical, just to kind of relate to a story. I always like to bring my wife into the podcast and talk about an experience. So we got a new GE fridge back two years ago now or so and had to have a service tech out, which was a little disappointing how fast we had to have someone out. But he got everything fixed and he goes, oh, well, you guys also have the, the water filter. And so, you know, the subscription model is the big new thing the past, you know, five years now or more. But I think it's coming even more to the B2B side. And he goes and he's a, a, a GE tech and he goes, oh, yeah, right here on his iPad. He pulls it up and he goes, all right, well, I can add you to our subscription program and do this right here. But right there in the moment. He was able to get a sale and that was through the tech, right? So the B2B side of the service side for a B2C experience. But I think that's that whole B2B to B2C, right? So the the whole long fun acronym that everyone starts to strangle together now. And what I really like to call it is the human to commerce experience, right? Right there in that moment, he knows he can get a sale because he's there and says, oh, yeah, every three months you have to change this. We'll get you a, a subscription. You don't have to worry about it. It's the best thing ever because I don't have to worry about it now. I look at that and I go, okay, well, that's great, but he also can do it for parts. When you flip it into understanding what that actually brings to someone in the field, especially in the service repair industry, the opportunity to look up and know whether you have a part nearby in a warehouse that you can go grab it from if you don't have it in your van, that you can order it, that you can also look at and use, and and I'm going to go a little bit off the deep end here, some, you know, predictive data analysis to say, hey, you know what, I'm replacing this part really at the same time, these are the next parts that typically commonly fail. I want to just recommend that I do a full service package for you and I replace all of these. That's the power of this information, the digital side. Absolutely, Tim. That is a great, that's a great example. And it is more consumer-like, but the, the same principles are applying. I want to give you two brief case studies uh, mentions out, out of the book. One of them is Illumina. So Illumina makes DNA sequencing equipment, right? Mm-hmm. What is that? If you, I don't know if you've ever gotten your gene sequenced at 23andMe or something. but Yes, anyway. and my dogs as well through Wisdom Panel. You, so, okay. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Surprisingly, Mars is the one who has Wisdom Panel, and we built their site and all the dog DNA sequencing for what type of uh, oh, no, breeds no, no, are in okay. your dog. So, yeah. So, uh, I know you've got one. So, if you ever wanted to know, and uh, it's a lot more for people who pick up animals from shelters to know, well, what breeds do I have and what energy do they have typically? And et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's really fun. But yes, the human side, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, but, but, you know, that's exactly like, the, you know, dog gene sequencing or human gene sequencing is one application of Illumina's uh, technology. They're a technology company. They build the equipment that does the sequencing, right? They don't provide the service. They, you know, the 23 Me's and Me's of the world use their equipment to sequence your genes. Right? Mm-hmm. One of the things I wanted to mention related to them, it's in the book, is how they are using digital commerce at the edge to meet the customer's needs. So they watch how the researchers who are doing this gene sequencing work operate their procedures. And they then suggest products to make them, that they make, of course, mm-hmm. that make them more effective at their job. So, okay, so then what is what is that? It's like, you know, they make chemicals and these consumables that go into these machines 
and they can suggest proactively what is going to make for a better experiment. And they do this by what's IoT, Internet yeah. of Things. Mm-hmm. They're Internet connected to these machines, and they're able to suggest these things. What has it resulted in? Greater share of wallet. Great example, right? Another example in the book is Bosch. You know, probably mm-hmm. know Robert Bosch, Power Tools, right? Yep. They make a lot of things. This is a great example of how a company can use digitally enabled devices in the field to create whole new businesses for mm-hmm. their company. So Bosch is, has enabled these. Well, they have this thing called Bluetooth or uh, Bluehound asset tracking. They've built into their tools and they've also enabled like sort of mobile, you know, buttons or chips mm-hmm. you can put into your tractors and, and backhoes and all that stuff. So you can track where the product or the, that asset is in the field. Why is that important? Well, they sell to contractors, like big general contractors or mm-hmm. tools are used in the field when you're building a high rise building. What is the number one cost to contractors? It's labor. Mm-hmm. When labor isn't effectively matched to the assets. They're losing money. So what they've done is create a software on top of this asset tracking that enables the company, their contractor client, to match those two and and make their business more efficient. And what does that do? It makes those companies more reliant on, more loyal to Bosch because they're solving problems that go beyond just a product that works great because they have those too. But they're actually solving a business problem, a pain Mm -hmm. point for that contractor building the skyscraper it's fascinating where you can go once you have the foundation set. But, you know, I'm talking about a place where most companies are nowhere near. Yeah. Right? A lot of them have, a lot of them don't even have e-commerce. Yeah. Well, and, and with and that, yeah, absolutely. And with that, Brian, I would say kind of following the construction experience with Bosch and what they're doing. We have some large agricultural companies that we have been doing work with who have the telematics software and the whole programs that also let you know, like in a combine at this amount of run hours, it will need this work done. Right. Right. So mm-hmm. we've got these dealers out there, right, who are going out and they're selling this equipment. Right. And they're not the manufacturer, the distributor, but the distributor and the manufacturer both want to know that data. So how do they partner right. together to share that? But then also the service packages that can now be offered in that B2B world of, hey, you know what? We're gonna handle the maintenance for you on this typical cycle because it's customized to your utilization, not just a standard like I always refer back to. I don't know if anyone does this anymore. I think most of them are digital now. I think there's a few car manufacturers who still print out the user's manual, right? My Volvo's got a whole digital one in the screen on the in, in the middle console now, but it's still had the print one, but maintenance schedules. You're on maintenance plan A or maintenance plan B. And I go, well, okay, but if I drive differently than others, it's a hybrid. I don't need oil changes as often. Oil has gotten better. Why should I go in at a set mileage versus a set utilization of how its performance is going? That's where all this is going. The Internet of Things and that digital footprint that's everywhere now. Bring that into Mm -hmm. play for those experiences. But without that Internet of Things... We would still be in a group, large group segment for B2B experiences versus now the actual individual personalized experiences that we can deliver, which is huge because a construction company that does maybe uh, high rises versus residential homes, there's a different utilization of tools and there's a different Mm -hmm. impact on schedule if they need certain things. So by actually bringing commerce and, and into the B2B world here with the digital learning that we can bring from that is huge for the performance output that we can bring for both, here's what you need next, 
on a supply aspect or supply run here with your tools was what you need from a, a maintenance perspective. And to me, it just it starts to really round out the entire holistic experience that you can deliver as a manufacturer or as a distributor. It really speaks to, Tim, I think the evolution of value and where value lies in, you know, the buyer's experience, right? And then mm-hmm. the, and the value that seller can can bring. I love to use the example of the car industry since you were just talking about it. If you look at the car industry over the last 30 years, car dealers used to make a lot of money from selling cars, right? Mm-hmm. And they, they would make 20 plus points of, um, of margin on every car they sold. Well, guess what it is today? It's like 3%. There's no margin left in cars, (laughs) right? And why? And it's because of this whole transparency of data, right? Mm -hmm. You know, people can see, think about your own car buying experience, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know exactly what it costs them to make the car, Mm -hmm. You know exactly how much margin they could potentially get and what you should pay for it. And you're not going to settle for paying, you're not going to pay more for the car because why would you? You don't have to. And I can walk into a dealer now and I can shop other dealers nearby and compete exactly. price compete unlike ever before exactly those dynamics are here for b2b mm-hmm. you're fooling yourself you don't think they're here I'm not saying you're fooling yourself no, yeah, in yeah. general mm-hmm. right but what have car dealers done well they've changed their business model mm-hmm. where do they make money now it's on the it's on the extended service plans which yeah. will eventually sell you the, the car why do you think they push it so hard? This mm-hmm. is where they make their money. Yep. That's where the margin is. And then service, right? So mm-hmm. it's in those two areas. It's no longer in the you know the initial sale of the car. So that's why you see car dealers working so hard to generate business for their service departments and so hard to you know get you into the extended warranty. And you know, I've fallen for it. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I I'll fully admit I did with mine because it was actually, a, in my mind, a fairly priced one for any dings or scrapes and anything. I've got four boys at home. I mean, little kids' bikes and wagons and toys in the garage. There's no way I'm going to get away without a scratch. And I'm just like, I'm very protective of it, too. You know, it's 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 it's, it's a year old now. And I, I got that email from them, another great automated way in, in, in that sense. B2C, but even B2B, you can do this, is just the automated check-ins. And you, you can really right. bring a new aspect to that seller check-in when mm-hmm. you are working with your buyers in the B2B workplace. So Absolutely. No, I absolutely agree. And, you know, the, the dynamics here in B2B, the same car dealer dynamic. I mean, if you look at, you know, I like to suggest companies take a look at, or people take a look at the margins of some of the big distributors. Mm-hmm. Look at Staples. Look at Granger. Look yeah. at, I mean, these are companies that have invested significantly in, in e-commerce and digital but even their margins are being impacted, and it's this transparency mm-hmm. issue. So you have these companies like Ranger or Staples and others that are working hard to differentiate in other ways, yeah. right? So And they have to. Because mm-hmm. it, it, that's that's the mandate. You need the foundation of e-commerce, but you've got to go beyond just e-commerce. And, and I like to say, too, it's not just reserved for the big guys. I, I have a study in the book about a small fastener manufacturer. Fasteners are like, you know, they're screws, nuts, and bolts. <laughs> Yeah, this is not, this is a commodity business if I've ever seen one, right? What have they done? Well, they've they've enabled e-commerce. They've been in it for a while. They've grown the business by doing a good job for their buyer, and they've kept their customer loyal. But they've also acquired new customers using digital marketing. Mm-hmm. This is a twenty million dollar distributor. This is not a you know eleven billion dollar Granger. So this is not you know some people say you know another sort of quote unquote excuse companies will use is well I can't I'm too small I can't do it. I call you out on that. No, you can. If you're small, you can. 
there are platforms you can get into. There, are, If you understand and focus on your customer and know who they are and know what their needs are, you can create experiences that are differentiated for that customer and you can win. Mm -hmm. You can win more share, you can win new customers, and you can keep your customer loyal and build your share of their wallet and do it better, you know, make them, keep them happy. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't think it's this is just reserved for the big guys. I hear that sometimes and I don't, yeah. I don't think it's true. Completely agree with you. I would call them out on that as well. And again, that retention, that personalization, the easiest customer to get is the customer you already have. So focus your right. attention on the, you know, on them and what they need and talk to them. That's my biggest thing of late too, is there's so much that I can say is best practices and all of this. I always love to say best practices is a title that I put onto a blog post to get you to click into it. It's just what I think is a best practice until I actually have data to prove that this is working. Then it's just another person writing a, a blog post title for that click. Let's yeah, actually get the data and let's talk to your customers. And that voice of customer is so easy to get now. Back in the day, I would run focus groups and we go in person. We go through so much to try and just gather some portion, a very small portion of what your customer feedback would be. The reaction that people have of responding to those quick little feedback surveys that pop up on your digital sites and digital experiences is huge to gather that information of what you should do next. Use that data to your advantage, especially in B2B. How do you want to engage with us? Don't assume how they want to engage. Actually ask them because you mm -hmm. might find that for one audience group that you have, they want to engage in a specific format. And for another audience group, you're going to have them want a different manner and you're going to need to cater to all of them. And especially the big one that I've been really focused on lately is generational research. And, and there's just some great sources out there that you can hear and and learn about the differences, especially as we look at the, the shift from the baby boomers and the Gen Xers into the millennials. And I, I will fully admit that the millennials do split at a certain point. It's a big age range and there's two different types of millennials. I fall in the more reserve side of millennials, I'll just say based on the, the age range bucket, uh, which means I'm like the very first year that they started it. Um, but with that, then you've got Gen Z who's now coming through and the Gen Z economy, what's their shift? Well, the millennials all wanted the digital experience. The Gen Zers are actually saying, we care about the brand and how they build the product. Mm -hmm. They get into the whole like water consumption use. Look at look at the changes. I'm, I'm going to go a little B2C right now, but it impacts the B2B side too. Patagonia changing their model for the water consumption used to create product. Mm -hmm. Well, in their manufacturing yeah. plant, in their distribution channels, now that's a, no, a new factor in the experience that a generation is now caring about. So now you as a brand have to care about. And that That's impacts right. all those channels of manufacturing, distributing, everything. And you have to find renewable resources or whatever it may be. It's just, it's amazing how the generational shift actually will impact even the buying on the B2B side. There's no question. You know, one of the dynamics I'm seeing, Tim, is, you know, yes, Gen Z, you know, loyalty related to brand and some of the other things they care about that go beyond just the product. But also channel, you know, is, mm -hmm. is one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, I've been thinking about is, is this new generation, and call them millennials, call them Gen Z, whatever, this new buying group, which is the B2B buying group, are they more loyal to channel than they are to brand? And what I mean by that is Amazon, right? Look at Amazon. When, you know, does brand loyalty exist in, a, in an Amazon world? 65% of customers are willing to buy something from a brand they've never heard of on Amazon. That's mm -hmm. a statistic. Yeah. 
So if a channel does a better job than the brands do in accommodating the customer, does the loyalty shift to the channel? I have this study in the book I cite from, I can't, it's a, some U.S. government agency that says that humans, this is kind of funny, humans have a lower attention span than goldfish. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's a, it's a great yeah. statistic. I love that one. I use it a lot. It's sad, too. I mean, I, we, we laugh, but I, it, it's sad. But even the counter, when Apple put the counter on how many times you pick up your phone in a day. Right. Woo. Was that eye-opening for the average number of use? But again, the shift in technology being there and the constant use of it. But yeah, the, the, the shorter attention span. Keep, keep going on that. Yeah, so the shorter attention span, what does that mean? It means, you know, the customer's uh, demand for efficiency, you know, on the consumer side, that has one implication. I think the implication is even larger on the B2B side. Because if we think about what makes for a successful, you know, sort of digital or even just generally commerce experience, why is a B2B buyer, what are, what are they trying to do? Well, they're trying to be more efficient. Mm-hmm. They're not buying for themselves. They're not looking at a shirt or a, a book or you know, something that's like more immersive for them personally or that they're personally interested. They're buying for their company, Yeah. right? So what, is, what do they want to do? They want to do it faster and easier, right? Mm-hmm. So the attention span is probably lower for the <laughs> B2B buying experience. What does that mean for the B2B seller? It means you've got to deliver that. And this is where I'm saying that, you know, potentially this, you know, the, the buyer is more loyal now to the channel that does that more effectively, whether that's a distributor, a manufacturer, a marketplace, mm-hmm. whatever it is, to get them through their buying journey more quickly and save them time. Eliminating friction is, and I say this a lot in the book, make the buyer's job easier is your key to success here. Absolutely. And, uh, I think that's true across all channels. If you're if you're informing them so that they're prepared for the call with the sales rep, mm-hmm. or if they're just buying online, or if they're talking to the sales rep and they want to buy online because it's faster and easier, everything's there. They're set up, their contracts loaded, they can just go boom and they're done. Those are the things that that are going to create success for our sellers, manufacturers, distributors, etc. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, yes, it does. And I think this is why this is such a, a, a critical area to just continue. I know you're doing it through different conferences, speak engagements, consulting, and in, in, in your book, and that's where we have to make sure that the B2B decision makers understand the value of the digital commerce channel for them. And the, I say that broadly, right? That channel is multiple channels. To your point that you just made, it might be mm-hmm. Amazon, it might be a niche marketplace. Depending on who you are, you need to see where you need to be. And that awareness even, right? So how do you reach the newer buyers who don't engage with you like they used to, right? I I saw a fun website actually just this morning. I was looking at something and I I went to the Contact Us page and and lo and behold, there was a fax line right underneath the phone. I go, what? But then right next to it goes, just kidding. We don't have a fax anymore. And I just, it was a hilarious thing. And I go, but I actually still know companies that fax things. For, and no, and it's sure. crazy. Um, but overall, and I, I want to make sure that we, we get a little bit towards that, you know, what does the future look like in your mind here? As we look at just Amazon itself, we've got all these different stories about companies selling products wholesale on Amazon, not selling it at all to Amazon, but their products show up in that marketplace anyways with right. low prices very commonly. How do you get a control over that? Like, what's the way that... To make sure, especially in that big of a channel of Amazon, that that companies, we talked a little bit about it before of wanting to control the experience there. What about when 
someone else is throwing prices out there. They're super lowballing them. And how do companies come in and, and work on that? It's a great question. You know, we did a survey about a year or two years ago to the manufacturers, and we asked them, how many of you have products on Amazon, right? Or how your products show up on Amazon? And about 70% said, yeah, our products are there. You know, they, they show up. And then we asked them, how many of you know who all the people are selling your products? And close to 75% said, we don't know who they are. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so this, is a, this is a very common challenge. And so what do you, you know, as a manufacturer, brand, your distributor, whatever, if you have a brand, how do you protect yourself? How do you manage this? And I've, I've alluded to a couple things related to how you sell. The first thing is you want to make sure that you have a channel uh, control agreement. So, so I think, well, let me step back a moment. You want to make sure that you are operating, you have a proactive program on Amazon. So you need to be in paying attention to what's happening there in one form or another. So one of the key ways to solve this issue is to do it starting with starting outside of Amazon with distribution agreements, with MAP policies, minimum mm -hmm. advertised price policies, and then managing your channels so that they're not, you're basically authorizing or not authorizing companies to sell on the channel. That's one of the things. Now, there's a lot of nuance to this because some companies have diversion. They have uh, sub-distributors that buy from distributors. You have to hold the original distributor accountable. So anyway, there's a lot of sort of, there's some legal aspects to it. The good news is on this front is you can get control of it for the most part. There's some very good law firms that also help with this. And then you use what's called Amazon brand registry, which is a way that, you know, if you're a trademark holder in Amazon, you can actually gain some additional rights to control your brand content. So I say at minimum, if you have any kind of brand at all, you need to make sure you're controlling that in Amazon, because at the end of the day, Amazon, as we've talked about, Tim, is a search engine, right? Mm -hmm. It's getting 70% of product search. So there's, that's one aspect. And now if you're going to sell your product on Amazon, we, we strongly believe, you know, with my firm in SIBA, that most companies should pursue what's called a 3P strategy, which is a marketplace selling approach, also called Seller Central. Why? It's a way to sell on Amazon while controlling your content, your price, your inventory. You're selling through Amazon, not to Amazon. And selling to Amazon is what's called the vendor central approach. That can still work for some companies, but ultimately... There are some very large companies out there that are looking to shift to that 3P approach mm -hmm. because of these control issues I've been talking about, price, content, inventory, et cetera. And when they do it, when they come out of the other side, some of these companies we work with are doing $20, $30 million in sales on Amazon a year. They have more control. They have more, also more profit, which also helps. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But control is often the reason they're doing it, right? Yeah. No. So does that make sense? Oh, it does. It does. And I know that... In SIBA, you, you guys consult and help companies get that experience and exposure to understanding that channel. Where do you see the future? I want to jump to that. As we look towards the future, lessons for tomorrow, you know, in our show name, where do you see B2B commerce going in the next three years, five years? I'm not going to ask you for 10 years out. That's just too far. But in the next three to five years, what do you think is going to be the next biggest impact in the B2B commerce space? Well, I think well, a couple things. So I think we're going to see a thinning of the mid-market, meaning if we look at traditional distribution, industrial distribution, whatever, in different categories, we're going to see a thinning of the mid-market. Some companies that don't take action are going to go away. And that might take three, five years. It might take a little longer, but we're going to have some. Those, those particularly the mid-market, is being disrupted. Um, 
we have new entrants. So we're going to see new brands in the marketplace that are using these new channels to come to market. Again, loyalty channel over mm -hmm. brand in some cases. Um, I think we're going to see um, vertical marketplaces. I think we're going to see more of these happening. And I think we're going to see distributors, some distributors buying some of these vertical marketplaces. So I think we're going to see, you know, in building materials, for example, I know one construction materials marketplace is already doing $200 million in GMV. Wow. Mm -hmm. So does a building materials distributor who's traditional, who may have a billion or two in sales, they come along and buy them. I think we do, I think we start seeing that. I think we see in certain segments, pure play e-commerce, pure play marketplaces growing. And I think we see distributors buying them for their intellectual property, their people, their know-how, their nimbleness, and probably leaving them alone. Right. Mm -hmm. so, buy them. <laughs> so I think we're going to see that. I also think we're going to see in the next three to five years, a lot more manufacturers with e-commerce. And, and I, and I, I, I'm confident of that because I talked to a lot of these manufacturers and they're starting their journey. Yeah, They're starting their journey in a lot of cases with Amazon. They're saying, I want to gain control of this, but I'm going to become a direct merchant. I'm going to sell through this third-party selling model, mm -hmm. and I'm going to build my muscle. And then my next step beyond that, I'm already seeing it, is moving into e-commerce myself. And they're doing it very cautiously. They're trying not to disintermediate their channels. They're, trying, they're, they're doing it in a way that supports the channel meaning they're preparing data and they're using that data in the channel. They're providing analytics to the channel. By channel, I mean distributor, retailer, dealer, whatever they their traditional reseller is. Yeah. But I think we're going to see a lot more manufacturers selling direct. So those are some of the things I think, you know, let's call it five years we're going to see. Certainly we'll continue to see Amazon business take share, particularly in, in the long tail, uh, sort of the tail spend areas of B2B. Wonderful. All right. There you have it, listeners. The future from Brian Beck. Look for his book, definitely. And guess where? On Amazon. And <laughs> but Brian, if they want to learn more about the work that you've done, the, the case studies, et cetera, what's the best way for them to maybe connect or learn more? Yeah, thanks, Tim. I mean, there's two, two ways to get in touch with me. One is to, well, you can find out more about the book by just putting a dot com at the end of the name of the book. So billion dollar B2B e-commerce, it's a mouthful, billion-dollar-B2B-e-commerce.com. Mm -hmm. You can find out more about the book or you can search it on Amazon. You can also contact me directly at brian at enciba.com, E-N-C-E-I-B-A, brian, B-R-I-A-N, at enciba.com. And out of, out of curiosity or out of uh, interesting point, Tim, the book is printed on demand around the world by Amazon. So uh -huh. I don't actually have a stock of these. Interesting. I don't have a stock of these books. As soon as someone places an order on Amazon, it's printed, and it's printed all over the world. And they have these printing facilities. It's incredible, this company, I tell you. You know, you're going to have that book in two days. You, mm -hmm. you order it, it's printed for you. It even says, like, the born-on date in the book. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it, it is, and, and and that's what happened with my order, right? I ordered on Amazon, and I got it mm -hmm. through, uh, you know, the two-day about turnaround. And that is just mm -hmm. crazy that it was printed on demand, versus yep. back in the day where we'd have to have so much inventory ready in different distribution centers, et cetera. And we'll continue to see that growth. But really, Brian, I just can't thank you enough for the time today for talking about this critical piece of commerce, which is B2B e-commerce and the continued growth between distributors and manufacturers. And for all of our listeners, thank you for tuning into the future by listening to the Lessons for Tomorrow podcast. Uh, again, for more information about the topics discussed today, check out the description notes for this episode. And if you want us to cover a specific topic or submit feedback, please email us at lessonsfortomorrow 
at AmericanEagle.com and let us know. Be sure to follow this podcast wherever you listen to them to stay up to date. And while you're at it, if you wouldn't mind giving us a rating and sharing this podcast with others to prepare them for the future. And again, follow us on social media. This episode is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. I'm your host, Tim Alanius, and I'll catch you in the next lesson.